So 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 to 11, let us hear the word of God. Now the Spirit... Sorry, verse 6. <laughs> if you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine which you have carefully followed. But reject profane and old wives' fables and exercise yourself toward godliness. For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. For to this end we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men especially of those who believe. These things command and teach. And as the grass withers and the flower fades, God's word endures forever. One of the things about this letter to Timothy is that Paul spends a fair bit of time dealing with Timothy as a minister. And particularly here in these uh, these words and moving forward uh, pretty much to the end of this chapter, uh, he spends uh, a lot more time instructing Timothy on his personal responsibilities as a minister of Jesus Christ. But I want you to understand that this has been written not solely, again, not solely for Timothy's sake. This has been uh, written to be a very public letter to the church. It has been written in apostolic authority. And these admonishments and these instructions that are being given to Timothy are not just for him. They are for the church to hear that he is the one that Paul has sent to Ephesus with the purpose of instructing the church at Ephesus against false teachers and their schemes. There is that apostolic authority, if you will, that Timothy is operating in. And Paul is telling him uh, in, in verse 6, he says, instruct the brethren. And by saying that, he's saying to you, the brethren, to you, the church, receive this instruction. <laughs> that these are things that are important, not just to Timothy, but to you and to your souls. And the things that he, he's telling Timothy to be a good minister of Jesus Christ concerning is, as I said, these, these teachings of these false t- uh, teachers, the doctrine that they're espousing, which he mentions in, in verses uh, 1 to 3. The mysticism and the false godliness that these men have, who have risen up within the church are promoting amongst the people. And in doing that, and in revealing these dangers that are out there before you, the church, you, God's people, Paul says if you do these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ. And I thought on that and believe that there's a greater question sort of underlying that statement that every one of you in the church needs to consider. Maybe two questions. What is a good minister? I mean, there are... I, I, I heard this, so I, I hope I have it, have it somewhat in that accurate statement. There are over 100,000 ministers 
in the U.S. and Canada. What is a good minister? (laughs) And, And in line with that, do you trust your minister to be good? I think there's the implications that come and meet you as Christians and as members of a congregation. What is a good minister? And do I trust my minister to be good? We live in a time and day where trust in authority is is vacant, (laughs) is dying. (laughs) And people are more inclined to trusting in their own heart and leaning upon their own understanding. And I phrase that very much in accordance with Proverbs 3, verse 5. But what does God in His Word say to you, dear Christian? That's not your way. It's not the way of life in Christ. You are to be leaning not upon your own understanding. You are to be trusting not in your own heart, but in the wisdom and the Word of God and in Christ Himself. Do What is a good minister and do you trust your minister to do good? Do you receive his ministry of preaching and of admonishing, of instruction, of discipline as something that is profit to your soul? Are you attentive to what's being said? Or do you come to church, listen to a message, And take off into the week on your merry way to live and do as you please. And we have a propensity because we are yet dealing with a corrupt heart. I mean, those words uh, of Solomon speak to us as, as believers. And yet God knows the propensity of your heart is to trust in yourself. And to lean upon your own wisdom. Or to decide what is good for you. Conscience matters aside. I want you to understand from verse 9 that Paul has made this very point a faithful saying that is to be worthy of all acceptance. Again, this is not one of those familiar faithful sayings that we are accustomed to looking at in these pastoral epistles. There's five of them. This is the third one in 1 Timothy. There's one more in Titus and one more in 2 Timothy. But you all know the first faithful saying that was worthy of all acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. You all know that one. And we're familiar with that one. And we would say yes and amen to that truth, wouldn't we? Paul is using the same force of authority and principle with this faithful saying. That it is to be worthy of all acceptance within the church. So there's something really powerful here for us to grasp. And this third faithful saying is in respect of the godliness of the minister and his responsibility to lead you 
in the way of life and truth. And it's something to be accepted by the whole body of Christ. And so, I ask again, do you trust your minister to lead you in a godly way? Do you trust your minister to lead you away from unsound doctrine and practices into the narrow way of truth that leads to life? That's a challenge, isn't it? Again, I understand that there are those who have been hurt by leadership in the church. I understand that there are problems with some leadership in the church. That these men that we are looking up to are themselves fallible. That they're prone to the same sinful failures that each one of us are prone to. That doesn't excuse us. And that idea of learning and knowing who to trust is important. Who do you trust? I want you just to... I'm going to be very blunt here because Paul is blunt. We had this a week ago and I saw it in the news. My attention was drawn to it. Do you trust that RV that was rolling through cities in Ontario with a message scrolling that COVID-19 is the mark of the beast? Some people are. Do you trust that man who has a number of books on the shelf at Endigo under the religious section? (laughs) Do you trust that TV or internet sensation who has tens of thousands following him every week? Do you rely upon sermon audio to minister to your soul because the ones you're listening to are so much more powerful in their preaching than the one we get on Sunday? Or do you trust the pastor of that local church who has been verified by Christ and His church to be the shepherd of the congregation that you attend? I don't want to sound like I'm self-exalting here, but that, that's what Paul is getting at. As he writes to Timothy, he's writing to the church. Timothy's a young man. He doesn't have that experience of life that the elders would generally have. But Paul is is issuing this because this is something that is a matter of life and salvation for you. Your life in Christ. And so he sets out here the principles of what is a good minister of Jesus Christ. Not just the qualifications of those that he referenced earlier in chapter 3 about those who would, as a faithful saying, those who would desire the position of overseer or bishop is desiring a good work and he lays out the character of these men. Here he's saying what characterizes A good minister of Jesus Christ. And the first thing that we see there in verse 6 is that he has good doctrine. Good doctrine. And this stands in contrast to the false teachers. And Paul begins here because if there's anything that is a priority to your soul, 
and a priority to your salvation is having someone who is preaching and instructing to you the Word of God with a good doctrine. And if you don't believe me, those of you who have your Bibles, go down to verse 16 of this chapter. What does he say? Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this you will what? You will save both yourself and those who hear you. Yes, this is a matter of salvation. You can be sincerely believing something that is wrong and be sincerely headed to hell. That is a reality. I know the sincerity of our heart holds up as, as one that we, we often as believers can do and believe things in ignorance of the truth. But what do you hear from Psalm 51 that is the great desire of our God? That is, that truth be found in the inward parts. And God has provided a way for that to happen to you. Because we understand, and and if you're a believer, you understand the deep connection of truth to who Jesus Christ is. You all know that verse. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. And what's the very next line? No one comes to the Father but through me. Do you see how important this is to your souls? To your walk and relationship with the Heavenly Father. Many Christians think that doctrine entails intellectual pursuits that have no life-changing purpose, but my friends, that's wrong. That's a lie of Satan. What you believe affects How you live. What you believe affects godliness in your life. Good doctrine brings about a life that is being transformed by the grace of God in Christ. Bad doctrine will also transform you. That's the truth. I think back, again I said I'm going to be bold this morning, to 1994, that infamous document that was signed, Evangelicals and Catholics Together. Do you know what has resulted from that? And what what the big, big issue of that document was? And it was in defining justification. It was in defining what does it mean to be saved? And the, the Protestant call of the Reformation was what? That we are justified alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. You all know that, I'm sure. And it's stating with, with absolute clarity the truth. How is it that my sins can be pardoned and I, a sinner, can be accepted by the Holy God of Heaven? 
be reconciled to Him. And it is because of what Jesus Christ has done in atoning for our sins on the cross and rising from the grave that we have found forgiveness for all our sins and acceptance by God as righteous because of the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. That's the triumph and the victory of the Gospel for every one of us. And therein is the sufficiency for our salvation, period. But you know what that 1994 document did? Is it removed the word alone so that evangelicals and Catholics could just get together and get along. And you know what has happened in the 26 years since then? The word evangelical is meaningless. It means nothing today. It has such a broad application that anyone is included in it. You see, bad theology, particularly with the doctrines of the gospel, affect not just what we believe, but our pursuit of godliness. And Paul is urging Timothy to be one who stands in good doctrine because he will be, as he says there, nourished in the words of faith. And this is again something that helps you. What characterizes a good minister of Jesus Christ? He loves, he studies, he teaches God's Word and he loves, studies, and then teaches what he has learned because these things have filled up his own soul with the goodness and wisdom of God that leads him in a right and godly way and he knows that's what you need. It's like a parent when it comes to the nourishing of their child Foolishly thinking, well, I'm going to prepare a proper meal for me, but my child just won't eat this. So all, all he really likes is, is hot dogs and craft dinner, and so that's what I give him for every meal. You know there's parents like that. We're laughing. But we know that circumstance, and we say what? What do we say to that? That's not good for them. Well, that word that Paul uses here in verse 6 about nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine. He's stressing that, that phrase, good doctrine. He's saying to the church, your minister ought to know what is good and that's what he's being nourished in and he's going to feed you the same thing. And this word, it's a verb, but it's in, it's in that, that place where it's, it's speaking of a continual nourishing. And you see in a good minister of Jesus Christ, they have a love for and a faithfulness to Scripture. And it ought to be evident. This is not something that can be hidden. It ought to be seen. 
Paul even stresses that. You know, in 2 Timothy 3, I'm sure many of you know these words, but he encouraged Timothy. In verse 14, he says, Continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood, listen to this, that from childhood, you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which which is in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on, all Scripture is inspired, given by inspiration of God, God God-breathed, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. For what purpose? So that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is about godliness. And good doctrine is essential to this. Good doctrine founded on the Holy Scriptures, inspired, inerrant, and authoritative from God, sufficient for all faith and life. I had a person ask me recently, and they're not from our congregation, but they asked me recently, how can I know that my minister is a good minister? I'm paraphrasing it a little bit. But I said to him that the first thing you want to check is if they believe that scriptures are the inspired, inerrant, authoritative word of God. If you don't get a yes from them, they're not good. Because if they don't have that stand in position with God's Word, how in the world do you expect them to teach the good doctrine of the Gospel? We hear it today still. It's been around for a full generation of my life that I've heard it. That no creed but Christ sentiment. Or in my younger days, this was... uh, the familiar phrase, I've never been to seminary, but I've been to Calvary crowd. You know what that kind of thinking does is it promotes a false dichotomy between saving faith and doctrine. There is no dichotomy with God. And even in our confessions, we talk about about having the doctrines of the Gospel preached and received that this is one of the evidences of a good church. The real value of Holy Scriptures gets lost on many when it comes to understanding and determining these things. Even in 2 Timothy, how does Paul frame it? How does a true minister diligently present himself approved to God so that he will not be ashamed He's rightly dividing what? The word of truth. Rightly dividing it. Not wrongly. And why you need this? Well, as Paul says there in verse 7, you need to be taught these things so that you will learn to reject profane and old wives' fables and exercise yourself toward godliness. This is an essential matter for the church. Who can follow good doctrine so he is able to reject 
these mysticisms and these these superstitions and these profane fables that confuse and and do not lend toward a holy and godly walk in Christ. How do you discern wisely, especially in our day with all the nonsense and foolishness that captivates many people's minds? This This is where it begins. Good doctrine. And the second... The second thing that that marks a good minister of Jesus Christ, you see it in verses 7 to 9, and this is godly exercises. Good doctrine, godly exercises. And again, I remind you of what godliness is so that we're all on the same page. Godliness isn't you going out and saying, well, how I understand it in my own life is how I'm going to glorify God. No, godliness is this. Godliness is having a reverence toward God first. Where you desire to faithfully bear the image of God in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness so that you can love and serve God in your whole life. It begins with a reverence for God, but it's understanding that there is an image in which the Holy Spirit through the Word of God is is at work conforming me unto. And it's not the image of my own understanding of what is a godly man. It's the image of Christ. Always and ever, God says, here is the perfect man in whom I am conforming you unto. Doesn't that excite your heart? To stop and to think what it means to become perfect before God. And Christ is that image. And godliness is about growing in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness in that image of Christ. Because your desire is to love and serve God with your whole being. And the impact of bad theology encroaches upon godly exercise. Just, again, I want to be bold in saying certain things, but what drives a person to go around with that message of COVID-19 on a van? Is that wisdom from God? What spurs a person to light candles and pray for the dead? What leads a Christian to believe that uncontrollable laughter rolling on the floor and barking like a dog or roaring like a lion is worship. I'm I'm stressing this to understand the impact of bad theology. What leads people to hold to foolish myths and superstitious beliefs? And they fill many people And here Paul is saying is that you will see a good minister. And that word minister, again, I discussed this before back in our um, message on the deacon. But that's the same word for deacon. (laughs) It's ministering, serving. Who is a good servant 
of the Lord Jesus Christ is someone who is exercising himself toward godliness. And just in case you think I'm picking on those who are outside of our circles, I want to ask some that might hit home to us. What makes for hyper-Calvinism? Where we give up evangelizing the world around us because if they're elect, God's going to save them. What makes for hyper-covenantalism? Where parents just simply look upon their children as being regenerate, not really and truly calling them in the gospel to faith and repentance. God will sort it out in their life. What is it that often generates cold, dead, and lifeless faith that marked the church in Ephesus? What builds indifference and complacency towards sin and the gospel and the labors of that gospel. And I believe that's what Paul is stressing here as he calls Timothy to godly exercise. That it is not just bad theology, but a lack of exercise in godliness. A lack of exercise in godliness. All of you here, I don't, this is going to be rhetorical, but all of you here understand the profit of bodily exercise. We do. I mean, how many are going to make that New Year's resolution coming up very soon? And, and we're aware of the need and understand the profit of bodily exercise, not just for weight loss, but that it maintains health. It maintains a mentally alert mind. It grows physical ability. Paul makes that clear in verse 8. Bodily exercise profits a little. He's not saying it's useless when he says a little. He's saying, yes, we understand. There's a measure of profit from it. And most of you know your own bodies that you need more exercises if you have goals in mind. Well, he brings that analogy over into the issue of godliness. That we need to exercise godliness as well. And it's not as hard as you think. But it's always the challenge where these things that are vital and important to our life and walk of faith become routine and mundane. And I'm talking simply about the means of grace. The simple means of grace. Bible study. Worship on the Lord's Day. Preaching and being attentive to it. Sacraments. Prayer. That God has established these very basic requirements that in the the power of the Holy Spirit that is within us, He uses His Word and prayer and worship and preaching and the sacraments as a means to exercise us in godliness. And that's understanding, even today, where we have the Lord's Supper before us and and we're participating in worship. We understand we're not simply being a spectator. 
What exercise does the spectator get other than with his lungs? It's like going to a gym and just watching everybody do their exercises. That you, you even here, are to be engaged in your body and soul to the worship of God in the power of the Spirit. That you understand that in in the ministry of His Word and sacrament, God has promised His grace to my soul. Through singing and through prayers, a ministry of heavenly proportions is happening in my soul. It's not complicated, but I'm sure, and I say this often because I know it's hard, that the two most difficult exercises that just about every Christian has is reading their Bible and praying. I don't doubt that some of you here will say, I do it at night just as I'm ready to go to sleep. And you know how quickly you go to sleep. (laughs) And we think that that five minutes in that evening hour are going to help us through the next day. Godliness needs an exercise routine. And it's simple, but it requires the effort in the Spirit of our souls. And I say this so you understand that the minister that Paul is speaking here of is not some super elite godly man. He is one who himself is but a pattern of Christ (laughs) and striving in these things. And who has as well the responsibility in these clear and simple ways to be exercising godliness in his life. That's what it is. And the last thing that marks a good minister of Jesus Christ, as you see it in verse 10, and that is gospel labor. There's your alliteration. Good doctrine, godly exercise, gospel labor. You know, the greatest thing a good minister of Jesus Christ does and is concerned about is the souls of people and where they will be for eternity. The eternal well-being of Christ's sheep. It ought not to be in the greatness of His following. It ought not to be in the numbers that are before Him. And it is not first and foremost their physical or social well-being. But it is essentially having an eye to eternity concerning the spiritual life of this person before God. For to this end, we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially those who believe. Good minister of God is one who will labor tirelessly for your soul, even suffer reproach to see that the gospel of Jesus Christ prospers in your life. And what is his confidence? His confidence is in the living God 
who has promised to redeem you, who has promised to bring His gospel to you, who has promised to establish you in His kingdom. He trusts in the work that the living God has promised to do. And so he prays and he ministers God's Word and he seeks the lost and he labors intensively. Because as Paul would say to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 11, that his zeal, his desire is to see you presented to Christ as a pure and spotless lover of Christ. Do you love the Lord Jesus? And it's in this way that the gospel is the thing that is always set before you. And I hope you've already heard that gospel and what it means for you to be justified. What it means for you to know and to have the assurance of your salvation. That you are one who is able to rise and to stand and say, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and trust in Him alone for my salvation. There is no other hope of glory that I have. You know and you see the work He did on the cross in your place to remove you from that guilt and condemnation of sin. To know that He is in heaven interceding for you. That He carries on His faithful work because He is not going to see one of you lost. My friends, I ask you, is this your trust? Do you trust in the living God who is your Savior? That even after a message like this that uh, may seem somewhat uh, out of place in Paul's letters, that what was spoken to you was purposed to cause you to fix your eyes upon the Lord and to know the One who is both the author and finisher of your faith. I love Christ. And I want to love Him more. This is a good minister of the Lord Jesus Christ. He will ask you that question. Where are you today with Christ? Search your hearts. Where are you today with Christ? Do you know that His great work is to see that you know the length, breadth, depth, and height of His love for you so that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Doesn't that amaze your hearts? That God wants you to be filled with His fullness. Come and be filled with the love of Christ. Know it. Let us pray.